We're going to be starting in 1 Corinthians, and I know many of you have purchased this uh, journal study Bible. Um, If you don't have one of these, um, you'll be able to follow along in your regular Bible just fine. If you did want to purchase one of these, we actually had 45, 50 of them. We ran out, but I will be ordering some more, so they'll be here about Wednesday. Or if you really want one and you just want to cut out the middleman, you can order this on Amazon. It's like seven bucks. Otherwise, we have them here for five. Um, But you can pick one of these up if it helps you follow along. Um, And I think it might. So uh, one of the things we're going to do during this series is we're going to have a focus on what does it look like to really study verse by verse um, scripture? What does it look like to really dig into the words and the language and the meaning and what does God have for us? And, and so we're going to have different people kind of help us explore that. And we thought we'd start this week um, by asking Malia to come and help us. Malia is the one that first introduced me to these um, journal Bibles. And so um, I know she is uh, well-versed in them. And so it'll be good to have her um, start. Uh, I feel like I should point out because I failed to do this for service, but my shorthand at the top of the page stands for follow up. So whatever. <laughs> uh, first, I just wanted to say how excited I am that uh, we're going to be walking through this series together, tackling a book of the Bible line by line, which is something we haven't done before. Um, And one of the reasons why I'm so excited is I suspect that there are probably some of you out there who've never studied the Bible this way. Um, And and so I think that it's going to be such a blessing to you um, and to us as a body of believers. Um, One of the things that I think we tend to do, and it's definitely not on purpose, uh, but one of my favorite Bible teachers calls it the pinball approach, where um, we we'll use whether it's a devotional or some sort of topical Bible study to kind of guide us through the Bible. Um, And when we do that, a lot of times we'll pull scripture from different places. You're kind of all over the place, somewhat like a pinball machine. Um, But when we do that is what happens is we sometimes we'll lose um, context, authorship, uh, original intent of the book that was written. Um, and the Bible isn't, it wasn't written to, to be read that way. Um, one example that I really love is think of it like um, you want to learn and master algebra. And so you open the textbook. And rather than starting at the beginning, you kind of hop around, read different paragraphs out of order for 10 minutes every day. Um, and at the end of it, are we going to be proficient at algebra? Probably not. Um, if we really wanted to learn it, we'd start at the beginning and take our way through it methodically, laying that foundation as we go and reading everything um, in its entirety. Um, and so we should be treating the Bible with at least as much respect as we would treat a textbook, right? So, okay, so how do I use the scripture journals? Um, I basically use them to write anything um, that I wouldn't want to write in my regular Bible. Um, so those of you that grew up maybe not writing in your Bible or were taught that it was bad to write in your Bible, um, this should be a really, really good exercise for you, and it should be super freeing, right? You can circle and underline and write whatever, write random questions. Um, so... I would suggest, um, first of all, that you're making sure you're reading the text before you come to church on Sunday. Matt will be publishing the um, chunk of scripture we'll be in each week. Um, And then not just reading it once, but taking the time to read it repetitively. Um, They're going to be short chunks, so you should have plenty of time to do that. Um, And that helps with uh, scripture memorization. It also helps Um, with just pulling different things. I think every day is a different day. Um, Some days I'm more distracted than others, and so uh, I will, like, different things will just jump out at me. So reading it over and over will be good. And um, this is a great opportunity to grab a friend and kind of powwow with each other, questions you have, um, thoughts you have, ideas, things like that, and kind of see what they're pulling from it. Um, And then... Sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but the Bible's hard to read sometimes, and I have lots of questions. Um, And so sometimes just reading it in another translation is helpful. Um, 
this is ESV. Uh, NIV is really good. Matt usually preaches from the NLT. Um, I have recently discovered the CSB, and I really like that a lot too. Um, but sometimes that'll just clear up your questions just by looking at another translation. Um, so another thing to do is to write your questions and thoughts out. Um, uh, just for instance, in this particular chunk of scripture, right away in the first verse, there was a name that I wasn't familiar with, and so I put a little question mark next to that. And thankfully, Matt cleared that all up for me in the first service during his sermon, so we are good to go. Um, I should also mention that this is not an exhaustive list. These are just some things that I do that I've learned to do, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of other things as well. Um, you want to be looking for and like so circle, underline, repeated words or themes that you see. Um, on this first page, one thing you'll notice once you read through it is that um, Paul uses the word called and the idea of being called a lot. Uh, he also uses and refers to Christ many times. Um, he says, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ. Um, and if you count them, he actually says that nine times, just in nine verses here. So I feel like that is probably super important to note. Um, and then lastly, um, look for God. Uh, what attributes of God do you see in this part of scripture? Uh, if you look at verse 9, Paul says, God is faithful. And so that's a gimme. He tells us one right there. Uh, and then if you just did a, a quick read through some other things, I noticed um, that God is sovereign, uh, that he is our provider. Uh, verse 8. Paul says he will sustain us to the end. Um, he is merciful and generous and good, and I'm sure there is an even longer list than that just on this first opening page of 1 Corinthians. Um, and I think that's what's so cool is that if we take the time to stop and really look for those, uh, God is all over this. So, thanks. All right. So that's uh, to know that that's follow-up letter. Um, I actually thought it said flu letter. Um, and, and, and I, and then I was thinking, did anybody watch the last dance about Michael Jordan? And then I was thinking about the flu game, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others don't. Well, if you don't stop listening for a second, but the flu game was awesome, right? You know, he's like sick and IVs. And then the next thing you know, he's, he's scoring 45 in, in the finals against the jazz. You don't care. But I thought like, oh, this is his flu letter. I thought Malia's cooler than I thought, right? She's got a Michael Jordan reference in here. And she's like, oh, this is, this is Paul's like greatest letter. And I was like, okay, but now it's less cool. So thanks for clarifying. Um, so, so anyway, um, I'm excited about our opening up um, this letter in particular because it's instructive for me. Um, I, I think this letter it has been instructive for my own spiritual formation as I've grown as a Christian. There's been a lot in here for me to, to read and understand and process. And, and um, I've grown in from what I, I, I believed, I thought I knew, to then wrestling with God, what God is teaching and what he's saying and, and, and those things. And so I, I, hopefully you'll find it as instructive. Uh, we're calling this series, and, and so you'll get used to seeing this because this is, man, we're going on this for 24 weeks prodigal church. The reason we're calling this prodigal church is because that's exactly what the church in Corinth is. You'll remember the story of the prodigal son that Jesus shares, the, the parable about the son who belongs to the father, but then who leaves home, wanders away from home, um, and, and starts to live separately from the father. Never stops belonging to the Father, but he's wandered and needs to return home. And that's what this is. Paul makes it very clear as we open up this letter in, in, in just the beginning, um, his, his salutationing, his opening salvo here is, is just the, this idea that this is a church that belongs to the Father. These are individuals and collectively, this church belongs to the Father, yet as he will demonstrate throughout the course of the letter, this is a church that is in many ways wandering away. They've left home and they're engaged in wild living 
And Paul is encouraging them and admonishing them and correcting them to come back. The church in Corinth is a prodigal church, not unlike many of our churches today, right? Um, Sometimes we have churches that belong to the Father, but yet as a church they've wandered away, or as individuals that make up the church, they've started to to wander and we need to come back. And so Paul's letter uh, to the church in Corinth can be just as instructive for us. And so we're going to dig in here, and let me tell you a little bit about Corinth itself. Like today, it is a, a, a small, tiny, insignificant little place. It has some historical value, um, but, but really it's just an insignificant little piece of land in Greece. But in Jesus' day, at the time that Paul is writing this, the city of Corinth is huge and necessary and important in this global um, scale. Think about Greece. Greece was a center of, of the world at this point in time. And, and Greece um, has a southern part and a northern part, and it's connected by about a four-mile stretch. Okay, And in this four-mile stretch, that's where the city of Corinth is. right? So all trade, all travel, everything had to go through the city of Corinth. Uh, it was such a, a valuable piece of real estate that um, the Romans, when they were um, conquering Greece, laid siege to it and destroyed it, right? That was a necessary step for them to conquer the land. And then a hundred years later, Julius Caesar rebuilt it, right? And so uh, in Paul's day, Corinth is, is relatively new, right? It's, it's about a hundred or so years old. It's been rebuilt. It's glorious. And, and the focal point of the city is this great temple to the goddess Aphrodite, See, Corinth was rife with um, immorality. And the focal point of that immorality started here, in the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. The temple housed no less than 1,000 priestesses. Another word for priestess in this instance would be temple And so what was common and actually encouraged as an act of worship to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was that people would go to the temple, her temple, and they would engage in prostitution. And in doing so, they would be paying for the temple to be upkept and also worshiping the goddess Aphrodite. city of Corinth was immoral. Paul lists some of the things that they were involved in, debauchery, drunkenness, idol worship, prostitution, homosexuality, um, uh, fornication, all of these things that they were known for. In fact, um, in an immoral world, it was quite understood that the city of Corinth was the center of that immorality. There was actually a phrase that people would use, right? Right? Uh, they, would, they would say that people were acting like Corinthians, right? If, if somebody was doing something debased or immoral, right, then, then, you know, people would say, oh, you're acting like a Corinthian. Because it was well known that that was the kind of people that lived in that city. We've got one of those. You know which one I'm talking about. We got one of those. We call it Vegas, Right? You, you know Vegas is one of those because of, of, of what it's known as, right? Sin city. So in a world of immorality, let's face it, this is an immoral world. In a world of immorality, Vegas stands out as a place that is really immoral, right? Well, that was what Corinth was. So we can kind of understand the context. I mean, I've said this before, um, that Vegas is, is just awful, right? I mean, let's face it, it's Sin City. That's what we know it as, right? There's a reason the tagline is what happens there stays there because it's so debased that you don't want anybody knowing about it. And I was so super stoked when Riley first graduated from UNI, and that's where she got a teaching job. Like, cool, <laughs> let's send her to Vegas, uh, I was not stoked, um, but she lived there for a couple of years, but she was a teacher. She was broke all the time. She had no money to spend anyway. But I remember when she flew down there and my dad and I drove two days in the van. I'm still not sure how it worked out that she got to fly and we drove her stuff. Um, 
But as we're there, I'm thinking to myself, man, there is no reason for a godly man ever to be in Las Vegas. There's no reason. That might be true for a godly woman as well, but there's no reason for a godly man ever to be in Las Vegas. Right? Why? Because there's temptation everywhere. And what does Paul say? He says, flee from temptation. Don't go visit it. Don't, don't spend your money to go. I, I, I got to be honest with you. Like, like, I mean, it's so bad. Like we were in the airport, like to go pick her up. Like we had got there, we dropped the stuff off at her apartment. We went to the airport to pick her up that night. And, and, and there are ads and there are flyers um, for all kinds of different things. Prostitution. Um, but the one, the one that made me think, man, they know who's coming here to spend the weekend was the ad for the hangover bus, right? Because they know that when you come, you're going to go out and party and drink. And that probably you're going to have so much to drink that you're going to be hungover the next day. So they say, well, don't waste a whole day of your Vegas weekend being hungover. What they want you to do is to call this number and the bus will come and pick you up. And you'll go get in the bus and they'll hook you up to an IV and they will hydrate you so you can be ready to go back out and have another fun night in Vegas, right? This is, it's immorality at its finest, right? And, and this is what the city of Corinth was, right? Everybody knew it. But Paul went there anyway. Paul went there to establish a church. See, he'd been in Greece, he'd been in Macedonia, Athens, Philippi, and, and God called him through the power of the Holy Spirit to go to Corinth. So on his second missionary journey, Paul goes to Corinth and he, opened, and he establishes a church. He starts by, by meeting Priscilla and Achilla and he, uh, Jewish converts, um, and he preaches the gospel to them and, and they're converted. And, and he goes and he preaches in the synagogues and Jews come to faith. And he preaches in the marketplace and Gentiles come to faith. And, to faith and, and he's preaching the gospel and it's making a difference. He's there for a year and a half preaching. People are being saved. People are surrendering their lives to Jesus. They're, they're turning themselves over to Jesus under his lordship to live his way. And it's hard. But Paul is, is, is growing this church in Corinth. Uh, and he's doing such a successful job that, that the Jewish leaders in Corinth um, try to, to take him and arrest him and, and have him tried as, as a traitor. Uh, Rome, of course, wants nothing to do with it because it doesn't have to do with them. It's between Jews and Christians, and so they stay out of it. But the persecution gets so um, thick that eventually Paul, after a year and a half, he leaves. And the church in Corinth continues. But over the course of time, they started to struggle. These believers in Christ, these people who had decided to follow Jesus, started to struggle. And they start to struggle with what a lot of us do. They were trying to live both ways. They were trying to have one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in the world. And they were trying to live both. Right? They, they didn't have this truth, something that, that, uh, that John shares in 1 John, right? Don't love the world or the things in the world, right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is John just basically saying, look, you know what? Eventually, you're going to have to love God more than you love these other things. These other things are pleasurable, but you're going to have to love God more. And, and the church in Corinth didn't quite have this figured out. They had a foot in the kingdom of God, but at the same time, they still had a foot in this immoral world, and they were trying to have it both ways. And that's where Paul hears about it. He hears about the troubles they're having. He hears about the mistakes they're making. He hears about their poor doctrine and their behavior that's not where it should be. And as a father, a spiritual father that loves them, he considers himself their spiritual father. He was there to, to, to share the gospel with the first people in the area that believed in Jesus. That church exists because Paul was faithful to the mission that God gave him. He loves those people. He has a heart for those people. He loves that church. He's passionate about that church. And he hears about the ways that they're struggling. And so he writes them a letter. And that's what we're going to do through this series is we're going to unpack that letter the way the early church would have. 
We're not just going to read through it real quick and say, okay, great. We read the letter that Paul wrote us, our spiritual father. Let's just put it away now and move on. We're going to dissect it the way the church would have to see what it was that God was sharing with them through their spiritual father. So let's dig in. Uh, Open up your Bibles if you've got it. Handy, if not, there's one in the chair in front of you, and and I'm going to be using the ESV, this study Bible. Like I said, if you have one, awesome. If you don't, um, we will have more here on Wednesday, or you can order it um, yourself through Amazon. But let's dig in. 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at the first nine verses today. And by the way, that, that's a pretty typical for what we'll be doing in this series. Nine verses, maybe 14 or 15, but we're not going to be looking at too many. Okay. So here's mine. You can see the notes that I've written. Not that you care, but Paul called by the will. I'm going to read you the first nine verses, by the way. I'm just going to read them all. You only see a little bit up there. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he writes this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, and so as we dig in here, right, we start with this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is Paul um, opening his letter. And he opens his letter with just this statement about who he is. And there's some real value in here because there's something we have to understand, right? This is not just a, hey guys, this is Paul, right? But in this simple statement, the first half of verse one in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, hey, don't forget who I am. I'm not just some guy, right? And Paul's not bragging. Paul's not inflating his ego. Paul's not boasting about who he is, but he's writing a letter to people he dearly loves in the Lord, people that, that, that he feels responsible for. And he's saying to them, don't you dare forget who I am. I am Paul called by God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I came to you in authority from God himself, and I'm writing to you in that same authority. Don't forget. See, and this is so important because in Paul's day, and and actually it's no different in our day, people like to talk about stuff they have no business talking about. Man, it is worse with social media, right? Everybody's got a platform. Right? And so everybody thinks what they have to say is really important. And it's usually not so important. Right? And so we really, we got to be careful like who we're listening to. Like, for example, you do not want to listen to me. I have no authority to talk to you about being fit and healthy. You're like, Matt, how do I lose weight? Like, ask somebody else. Right? Because I'm not going to stand up here and give you instructions and teachings about how to be healthy. Because obviously I should have no authority in that. Happens all the time in this day and age, right? Like, oh man, especially right now. Like, we got all kinds of people giving medical advice that shouldn't be giving medical advice. Somebody asked me the other day, it's probably a week and a half or so ago, they asked me, Matt, what do you think about this coronavirus vaccine? And I'm like, bro, I got a C minus in college biology 20 years ago. Ask somebody else. Like, why are you asking me my opinion on whether or not it's safe for us to get this vaccine? My opinion shouldn't matter to you. I know nothing, right? And, and, and we have to be careful about this. Like, 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 
Who has authority to speak into our lives in a day and age where everybody wants to be a voice of authority? It was no different for Paul. Christianity was new. I mean, at least for Jewish converts, they understood the Old Testament, right? They understood the Old Testament teachings and, and how Jesus fit. So they had at least a background. But, but for, for Gentile converts, Greek converts in this context, right? Like, like they, they didn't have that. So what they know is just this basic information about Jesus. And then they learn as they go. And, but it wasn't unusual for people to walk into town it wasn't unusual for people to walk into town, get a platform, stand on it, and say, here, I have truth. Listen to me. I have authority. Where did the authority come from? They gave it to themselves. But Paul says, in the start of his letter, he says, man, I'm Paul. You know me. Don't forget who I am. I have authority, but my authority is because I was called by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not tooting his own horn, but he is establishing that I have the authority of God. When I speak, when I tell you things, it's as if God is speaking to you. It's as if God is telling you these things. So Paul starts right off the bat here. Again, not tooting his own horn, but just making sure that they know who he is. I'm Paul. And I was called by God. Why? To be an apostle of Jesus Christ for you. That's why he was there in the first place. That's why he labored to establish the church. That's why he moved on in missionary journeys. And that's why in fatherly Christian love, he's writing them this letter. He is called. And here's the deal. As a Christian, somebody who has given their life to Jesus Christ each and every one of you has been called as well. You maybe weren't called to the same position that Paul was called to. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been called by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. You have been called to Jesus and you have been given a role to play in the kingdom. Just as Paul was. We keep going. Second half of verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, um, this is a guy that we've met before in Scripture. Uh, it's not unusual if you don't know who he is. Um, he, he's, he's just—we'll see a lot of these in Scripture, actually. He's a guy that we read about in five verses in Acts 18. In Acts 18, verses 12 to 17, we will meet this guy. Uh, but what's interesting about him here is he is actually, Paul says, our brother, our fellow Christian, Sosthenes. So what happens is Paul often does this. He will write a letter, but he doesn't physically write the letter. He dictates the letter, and one of his companions writes. Right? And so he's dictating. Sosthenes is writing, but he's writing. Obviously, he agrees with Paul. He's with Paul. And that matters because he used to be adamantly opposed to Christianity. We read that in Acts 18. He was actually the leader of the synagogue in Corinth. He was a devout Jew, and he hated the fact that Paul was there preaching the gospel and converting Jews. You know who he actually is? He's Paul from before Paul was converted. In Acts 18, we actually read that he hated Christians so much that he took Paul and he took the other believers and he tried to get them arrested and, and persecuted under Roman law. The Romans wouldn't do it, but that was his effort that he tried to do. He tried to make that happen because he hated Christianity so much. And now we read that he's with Paul. Here's why that matters for you. There are people in your life that you think you have decided they will never become a Christian. They will never give in. They will never surrender. They will never follow Jesus. Like, there are people you've decided in your own heart that they're hopeless cases. I'm going to be honest with you. There are people that I um, have thought in my life were hopeless cases. 
But you know what God's showing us right here? Is that if this guy who was so adamantly opposed to the gospel that he tried to arrest, right? He, he tried to have them persecuted, the believers, the people sharing the gospel. He was so opposed to it, he was trying to have them arrested. But now he's with Paul. He's co-authoring this letter with Paul. Because the gospel has gotten a hold of him and he has surrendered his life to Jesus. I don't know who you've been praying for that you feel like it's hopeless. Or better yet, I don't know who you are supposed to be praying for, but you're not because you feel like it's hopeless. But it ain't hopeless. Right? That's a name. It's a random name that we find in the first verse of, of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. But there's something to be gleaned from it, right? If, if Paul can sit here with Sosthenes and say, this is my brother in Christ who, who is writing this letter with me, even though we know he used to hate Christians in the church, listen, there is hope for whoever it is that you felt like was hopeless. Don't stop. Don't stop sharing the gospel. Don't stop praying. Sosthenes is proof that God will continue to work. Keep going in verse 2. Paul's called by the will of God, and, and who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, not the church of Paul, not the church of the leaders, but the church that belongs to God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to this church. It's like, I'm writing to the church of God that's in Corinth. Well, who is that letter to? Well, it's to the church. Who makes up the church? Those that are sanctified in God right? Sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called to be saints together with all those who are in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and our same Lord. He says, we call on him, you call on him. Um, so this letter is, is written to the church in Corinth, but Paul actually talks about two different churches here. One is the local church of God in Corinth. And he says, I'm writing to you guys. You are Christians. How do we know they're Christians? Because they're sanctified. They're called saints. They belong to Jesus. And he says, you belong to Jesus, not by yourselves, but you belong to Jesus along with every other person that belongs to Jesus. We know that is the universal church. There's a local church like Blessed Hope Community Church. It's a church of believers in a local area that worship together, that glorify God together, and that work to do the ministry together. It's local. But we aren't in isolation. We are part of a universal church that is made up of everyone that has ever believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Past, present, future. And it's that universal church that makes up the bride of Christ. So Paul says, you aren't alone, church in Corinth. You are part of this universal church says, but I'm writing this letter to you. And then he says this thing that's going to be so important that you really have to understand. What's he call them? He calls them saints. He says, you're sanctified. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are called to be saints. Here's why that matters. Because Paul is about to tear them apart. They have been living in Sin City... And they have been engaging in every kind of sin available. Drunkenness, debauchery, prostitution, fornication, incest, idol worship. They've been engaging in all of it. And he's about to tell them about it. That's the nature of this letter. It's corrective. He's about to tell them about the mistakes they've made in their doctrine and in their behavior. But he starts here. He starts by saying to them, hey, I'm Paul, and I have the authority of God to speak to you from God. And he starts by saying, this letter is to you who are saints of God, sanctified by God. You know what sanctified means? Set apart, made holy. Think about how encouraging that must be. I mean, they know what this letter says, right? You know when you get called into the boss's office and you sit down at the desk, you know what's about to happen, Right? When your parents tell you to come out of your room and sit down because they're going to tell you. So you, you know. They know what's in this letter. They know the correction that's about to come on them. But they don't know if Paul's going to say, you're out of the church. You're done. They don't know if, if they're going to say, um, through the power of God, the will of God, an apostle of, uh, of, of Christ Jesus, you're done. God is finished with you. 
They don't know what to expect, except it, the letter starts this way. I'm Paul, and I have the authority to tell you the things that God wants you to know. And yeah, it's not going to be pretty, but here's what you need to know to start with. You are saints. You are sanctified. You are set apart. You are holy. Think about the relief that that's got to be for them as they read this opening part of the letter is to say, yeah, it's not going to be pretty, and yeah, there's a lot of work to do, and yes, we're gross and we're messy and we're broken, but we're saints. We're holy. We're set apart. I'm going to tell you, that is a true statement for anyone that has decided to follow Jesus. For anyone who has made a decision to follow Jesus, you are a saint. Are you living like it? That's another question. You are set apart and made holy. Is your behavior holy? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. But Paul says, look, when you have decided to follow Jesus, you are set apart. You are sanctified. You are a saint of God. I am a saint. You're welcome. You are a saint. We are all saints together. It's like all saints day in here. That was a terrible joke. Let's pretend it didn't happen. We're all saints. We may not all act like it. See, here's what we learn. There's something different, and this is something you need to understand. It's important for Christians. There's a, different, there's a difference between our position and our practice. Positionally, we are saints. Practically, we may not be acting like it. The Corinthians, positionally, they are sanctified, set apart, holy. Practically, they're living like sinners. But Paul wants them to know who they are. And he keeps going. He says, look, I'm Paul. I have the authority to tell you what God wants you to know. You, even though your lives may not look like it, you are sanctified, set apart. You are saints of God. And then he says, grace to you. This is his prayer. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. He says, here's what I want for you. I want grace, the grace of God. Grace of God. You know what grace is? Grace is undeserved favor. He says, I, you're positionally saints, but practically you're sinners. You need the grace of God. You need undeserved favor from God. And you know what flows from undeserved favor with God? Peace. So, so grace and peace to you. And that's the introduction of the letter. First three verses. It says, this is who I am. This is who you are. This is what I hope God gives you. Grace and peace. First three verses. And then he enters in um, to the larger part of the text, which is going to take us 24 weeks. But we're going to look at the first six verses today. Um, I know we already looked at three. We're going to look at six more verses today. Okay, we'll start right here. Four through the first half of seven. And, and in this, um, because Paul's writing fluidly, like he, he's writing in, in this, he's basically writing as he talks. He's dictating someone else's writing. And so um, there are some parenthetical kinds of things in there. So in this, uh, actually, verses 4 and 6 go together, right? So you see him underlined there. 4 and 6 go together. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you, right? Why? Because of the grace that God gave you that was given in Christ Jesus, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And so here's what Paul's saying. He starts off this letter, you know, he, he's already said, here I am, here's who I am, here's my authority, here's who you are in Christ, and, and, and I'm praying grace and peace on you. And then he enters into the text of the letter, and he says, I thank God for you. Why? Because you're saved. That's basically what he's saying here. I thank God for you because you are saved. I thank my God. Why? Because you've been given the grace of God through Christ Jesus. That's salvific grace. It comes through Jesus Christ. You don't deserve it, but he gives it through Christ. I give thanks to God that you are saved. That you're Christians. That you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That you belong to Jesus. I give thanks to God 
always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And so what he's basically saying there is grace was offered and grace was received. And I am so thankful for it. Right? Paul says, man, I came and I preached the gospel. Grace was offered. God offered you grace and you confirmed it among you. You took it and you made it your own. And I am so thankful that you are saved. Can I be honest with you? This is one of the things that I thank God for about this church. It may not be true for everybody that steps foot through the door. But it's true for those of us that are members in the church, for sure, and many of us that are attenders. You know, I thank God that he has chosen to save us. I thank God that the gospel can be preached and that people can respond and that it can be confirmed, that grace can be offered and grace can be received. I thank God for that. Why? Because if that's not what we're doing, then what else are we supposed to be doing? We are sharing the gospel with people that need to know it. So like Paul, I, I can say that same thing about Blessed Hope Community Church, but that's what he says. He says, I thank God for you, always, right? Because grace was offered, salvation, salvific grace was offered, and salvific grace was received, was confirmed among you. And listen, that is the kind of grace that does not go away. Now, there is, I love the way Lowell talked about this last week. If you didn't hear Pastor, or uh, well, he's pastor, he's a retired pastor, but our elder Lowell um, preached last week. You can go back and listen online. Did a great job. And, and one of the things he said I thought was just such a great understanding. He talked about the fact that there is um, some theology that we hold with a closed hand. Some doctrine we hold with a closed hand and some doctrine we hold with an open hand. The doctrine we hold with a closed hand, we close our fist around it. We hold it like this because it will not change. It's tight. We hold on tightly to it. These are the things that make us Christians. Whether or not we disagree in a lot of ways, these are the things that make us unified. Who God is. What sin is. Who Jesus is. What salvation is. What the word of God is. We, we hold those tightly and we don't, we don't debate. They just are. But we hold open-handed doctrine that is more fluid or debatable, right? And we hold it open because we're free to disagree, and that's okay. And we're free to see things a little differently. Also, I hold it open because my thoughts, the more I study and the more I pray and the more God shows me things, my own understanding of this may change, Like, I'm never going to change who God is, who Jesus is, and who I am in Christ, where my salvation comes from. But there are other things, the more I read, the more I study, the more God shows me, that I might start to think differently about. Hold those with an open hand. So what I'm about to say is one of those things we hold with an open hand, right? But, But the more I study and the more I learn, the more I'm confident in my position, And a lot of people want to know the answer to this. And the answer is simply, can you lose your salvation? Once you are a Christian, can you lose your salvation or can it be taken away from you? Right? Or can you let it go yourself? Can you walk away from it? Now, I'm going to hold with an open hand here, and I know many good Christians who will disagree with me on this, and we can still be good Christians together. But the way I understand what Paul's writing here, along with other places in Scripture, is no. The way I understand what Paul's writing here is that if you are truly a follower of Jesus, if you truly have given your life to Jesus, if you are truly believing in him for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins, that that is salvific grace that is yours, right? He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And it was confirmed, right? The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. It is yours. And I thank God for you. You know, what's interesting here is they are living Unchristian lives. 
They are living unchristian lives. So Paul isn't saying to them, man, some of you need to really worry because that grace of God is about to flee from you. Like some of you are so far gone that you're probably walking away from the grace of God. He's not saying, man, some of you have made such big mistakes that, that you probably are in danger of letting go of your salvation. Instead, he just says, yeah, I know it's bad. And I'm going to spend a whole letter talking to you about your behavior and your doctrine and how it's whack. But I thank God that you are Christians. I thank God that you are saved. I thank God that you confirmed that and it's true for you. Right? And, and the grace of God, there's a couple of things. This is, this is part of why logically I just, I, I can't believe in the losing of salvation uh, because there's a couple of things that grace doesn't coexist with. Salvific grace doesn't coexist with guilt. To be motivated by guilt is a problem for the Christian. Now, we can feel guilty for sins in, in the way that we don't want to do those anymore. And that's called conviction from the Holy Spirit, right? Like, like when, when you were um, watching that thing on TV that you know you shouldn't watch on TV and you felt dirty because of it, it's the Holy Spirit convicting you in sin so that you can grow and do better, right? But, but God's grace doesn't coexist with guilt. God's grace trumps guilt, why? Because when you are made new in Christ, you are positionally righteous. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are set apart. Grace is a gift. It would not be grace if God said, I'm going to make you holy, but if you mess up again, I'm going to take it away. It wouldn't be grace. Grace is completely undeserved. So there's no way I can deserve it. Right? God's grace doesn't coexist with human obligation. Right? We should never think or say, well, God gave me grace, God saved me, so now I have to pay God back. You can't pay God back. The reason you needed the grace of God was because it was such a price that you could never pay it. And I got to tell you, if you spend your Christianity, your Christian life, striving to repay God, you will burn out and get frustrated and get annoyed and, and it will not end well because you'll never get there. And, and God's grace can't coexist with human merit. Why? Because it's never going to be a place that you get where, okay, now you're good enough that God will save you. Like, now you're good enough that God will say, okay, I'll take you the rest of the way. Listen, if you spend your Christian life trying, trying to, to, to work so that you're not guilty, trying to, to earn back what God has given you out of obligation, and trying to earn it out of your own merit, then you're missing, you're missing what grace really is. Grace is a gift of God that you can't earn and that you don't deserve. And that's why I love the way Paul starts this letter. He starts this letter by, hey, here's who I am. Remember who I am. I have the authority of God to tell you these things. And it's not going to be pretty. But before we start, I want you to know this. You are sanctified people of God. You are saints. And I am so thankful that you've been saved. You didn't lose it. You're not in danger of giving it away. Nobody snatched it. You are saved, right? And so now he's going to tell that, like, listen, you need to understand why this is so valuable. It's so valuable because there are so many of us that spend so much time striving. We don't have to strive. God's grace is rich and free. And it trumps my stupid. Because listen, guys, I do stupid a lot. And God's grace sustains me. I don't have to be worried that he's going to pull it back. We keep going. 
says, I thank God for you because you are saved because of the grace of God. And here's what happens because of the grace of God. In every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any gift. He said, I thank God that you're Christians. I thank God that you're saved. And because you're saved, you have everything you need. Christ has given you everything you need. Guess what? Jesus is not holding back. He has given us everything he has to give. He's not holding back from us. We have everything Christ has to give. And, 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 and Paul tells us that. He's like, look, so it starts with this, right? In all speech, you have everything you need. In all knowledge, every gift. You know, do you know everything there is to know? Absolutely not. You don't know everything there is to know. But do you have the word of God that has everything that God wants you to know? I mean, some of you got like four or five of these in your house. This is the word of God. This is all the knowledge that he needs us to have, that he wants us to have. He's not holding back. Did he put it right in my brain? No. But did he give it to me? Absolutely. Did, do I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me to help me understand it and learn and grow? Absolutely. I'm not lacking in any knowledge. By the way, did, did you see? Look, look at this print. It's pretty impressive, right? Like, it's pretty big. Carrie got me a new Bible for Christmas. It's like, I don't need a new Bible. And she said, yes, you do. Because like the cover and like Psalms were falling out of my old Bible. And so she got me this new one with giant print. And so now I'm living right. And I was so excited to use it this morning. And then I was like, oh yeah, wait. For the next six months, we'll be using this little thing. Um, so whatever. Right? But we have the entire word of God at our disposal. We're not lacking in anything. We're not lacking in anything, in, 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 in any gift. And we'll talk about spiritual gifts later uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. But, but spiritual gifts, um, we're not lacking. God gave us everything we need individually and as a church. Think about it this way. It's in you already. If you are a follower of Jesus, that spiritual gift is in you. You don't have to go find it. It's there. Do you have to develop it? Absolutely. When we're born physically, we are born with everything that we need. As we grow, we develop. As we are reborn spiritually, God gives us everything we need. And as we grow, we develop. The church is not lacking any spiritual giftedness. What the church is lacking is people that are willing to develop and use their gifts. But the church isn't lacking any gift. We have everything we need. God is not holding back. We're not lacking in any gift. And then he ends with this. He says, I'm Paul, and I have the authority to tell you these things. You, even though you've got problems, you are saints. You are set apart by God. You are sanctified and holy. And I thank God that you are Christians and that you have everything you need to live the Christian life as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is so cool. This is so important. We need to know this. This is what this says. This is another reason why even though I hold it with an open hand, I am convinced that you cannot walk away from your salvation and that it cannot be taken away from you and that you cannot lose it. Why? Because... God will sustain you. We call this doctrine the perseverance of the saints. What it means is this. Anyone who truly belongs to Jesus will be sustained until the end. Now, there may be people that made an intellectual decision once, and they said, oh yeah, I'll follow Jesus. They raised their hand or they came down for an altar call, but they never really surrendered their heart to Jesus. And if that's the case, then those people still need the gospel. But for those that have genuinely responded to the gospel, they will be preserved until the end. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the deal. He will, not he might, not he could, not he probably will, not there's a decent chance, but definitively, he will sustain you. Till when? Till the end till it's over. He will sustain you.
and you will be guiltless on that day. Why? Because God is faithful. See, this, this, is, this is how Paul starts this letter. And it is a letter of correction. But he wants them to know before he starts, you're okay. You're okay. Yeah, your Christianity is, is rough. Yeah, you're not living the life that you're supposed to be living. Yes, your behavior is wrong. Your doctrine is wrong. You're, you're, you're dabbling in the world instead of following Christ in the kingdom, right? But you're okay. You are saints of God. Those of you who truly believed in Jesus are set apart by God. You are holy. You are saved. And I thank God for you. And here's what he says. He says, and I am convinced that you will be guiltless on that day. Why? Not because you deserve it, because we don't deserve it, but because our God is faithful and he'll do what he said. See, this is the truth of the gospel. And Paul starts this letter to the Corinthians reminding them of this that they know in their core. Now, this does not mean that we can live a life of sin. And I'm always worried, like if, if you've never been to Blessed Hope before, like if you're listening online or you're visiting, it's the first time and I'm never going to see you again. You're like, okay, well, Pastor Matt said that I could just keep living my sinful life and God would still sustain me. Listen, don't do that. That's not, and we're going we're gonna to read a whole letter that says, don't do that. There's going to be a whole 23 more weeks that say that's a bad idea, right? But here's what we know to start with. When you struggle in your Christianity and listen to you, or listen to you, listen to me tell you, I struggle with my Christianity. There are some days that I do really well. And then there are some weeks where I do not. You'll notice the difference, right? There are days when I do really well. And then there are weeks, months where I don't. And I would venture to say that you struggle with yours. When we struggle... God is still faithful. When we stumble, God is faithful. When we jack it up, when we say yes to sin and no to godliness, when we do the things that we know we're not supposed to do, when we fall down, God is faithful. When you get drunk, God is faithful. Right? When, when you watch something on TV that you know you shouldn't, when you log on and, and you get stuck and when, when you're in a relationship that you shouldn't be in and when, when you're having sex when you shouldn't be having sex and when all of these things happen, look, they're not good and we need to address them and we will as we unpack this letter. But Paul starts with saying this, even then, even in the heart, God is faithful and he will sustain you. Why? That's what Jesus was for. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived. That's why he died. And I know we're up against it. So I'm going to ask you, uh, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. If you're online and you have something, uh, we always do it the first Sunday of the month. So um, if, you're, if you're live streaming regularly, you can be prepared for that. But if you're here, um, you have these um, communion cups on your seats. You can peel back the top layer and, and get the, the wafer, the bread, and then the, the, the second layer and get the juice. But when we have communion, this is what we're celebrating, right? That because of what Jesus did, we are in Christ okay. That we will be sustained. Why? Because it's not about how good I can do. If it was about how good I can do, it would never have been about grace. That's what we thank God for. And so I remind you that when we take communion, that it's open for Christians. You don't have to be a member of this church, right? Um, we just ask that you be a follower of Jesus because that's what we're celebrating with this is our following of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you to refrain. Or better yet, there's no time like now to give your life to him. There's no time like now to surrender to him because we see what he does. We see what gift grace is, right? That his body was broken so that our sin, our guilt, past and future would go to him. 
And as we drink the juice, that that we are entered into this new covenant, this relationship with him, where even though we keep messing up, his grace pulls us in and sustains us and holds us guiltless on that day. So this is what we do. We do this simply the way that the early church did it, the way Jesus taught on the night he was betrayed. He broke the bread, he passed it. He said, eat this. This is my body broken for you. Eat it and remember. It says in the same way after dinner, he poured the cup and he said, this is, this is the blood, the new covenant that's found in my blood. Drink it and remember. And so we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we thank you for, for God, the reality that we are as people who have genuinely given our lives to Jesus. Even when we struggle, even when we trip and fall, even when we wander from home. God, that we are saints. Not by our own merit, but by your grace that's available through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that our sin was put on him on the cross and that through his blood, we were ushered into this new covenant where we, we revel in the grace that was given to sustain us and hold us guiltless. Father, even when, especially when we don't deserve it. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. Amen. Hey, thank you for being here today. I hope that you're having a wonderful new year and I will look forward to seeing you next week.